Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses in a series, as Beth mentioned, in the book of Colossians. It's a letter written to a, a community just like ours. And that's not a setup, it's just factual. When you see why Paul wrote this letter and who he's writing it to, uh, you'll understand. It's very common to what we experience today. We've called this series Supremacy. The underlying theme of Paul's whole letter to the people is that Jesus is not just enough, he's more than enough. And he wants to establish why that matters. It's not just the fact we discuss, it actually has relevance to how we interact with God, with the church, with uh, our neighbors, with the saved and the unsaved, and everything we do, the supremacy of Jesus either becomes our focus or it becomes a distraction. So Paul's writing a letter. It's an interesting letter because it's a letter of caution. It's a letter of exhortation, and that's a good biblical word. What that simply means is it's good coaching, that the, Paul's not going to let us settle for less than we can uh, achieve, and he's going to drive us toward that. It's a word of encouragement and courage as well. It's a good word. At times, it's a hard word, and it's a very specific word. You see, Paul was confronting a group of people who lived in a town called Colossae. It was an interesting town. It had, it had people coming in and out of it. It was a, a community that people, it had its own I-44. Does that help us? Right? People came in and out of Colossae. They did business. It, it brought a mix of cultures, a mix of backgrounds, and it affected the people in the town. It, it was a challenge because what they were hearing was, it's really good that you have Jesus. That's a good thing. In fact, that happens in our culture, right? You and I get credit. Someone might say to you, what'd you do this weekend? I don't know. We had a pretty chill weekend or we had a really hectic weekend. What'd you do yesterday? Well, we went to church and people are like, wow. And instantly they attribute to you that you're a good person. Well, what'd you do on Wednesday night? Well, we brought the kids out to the youth group and went to a class. Wow, you're the Apostle Paul. You're amazing. You see, in our culture, people are so shocked that we connect it all with Jesus that they give us more attribution than we deserve. Because as a preacher, this is a dangerous statement, but it's true, and it's what Paul's addressing. Attending church services doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. The challenge for all of us is not simply to say, Jesus is a good dude and it's a good place to start. It's actually to realize that once you find Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. It's, it's this relationship that matters. It's, not, it's like, Jesus is, isn't a bad thing, it's just he's not the only thing. So Paul wrote a letter to a bunch of people who were followers of Jesus, and I want you to notice this. He's writing it to people that are already saved. They're convinced Jesus is Lord. He's not writing it to get people to be convinced of that. He's writing to people that were already convinced of it. It's very similar to what we experience here in the States. But the world still says to us, doesn't it, that Jesus is a good start, but it's not enough. That in the real world, you can't just have Jesus. You can't be naive and live your whole life, you know, pie in the sky one day. You, you know, you do have to worry about other things. You have to make sure you have your own security, and your own protection. So it's Jesus plus a really good 401k. Or Jesus plus a really good job for advancement. Or Jesus plus an athletic scholarship. Or Jesus plus whatever fill in the blank it is that makes us bow. And Paul's writing a letter to these people saying, no, it's not Jesus plus anything. Jesus is enough. There's nothing lacking about the work. There's nothing deficient 
in what he's doing. The theologians will tell you that what they were practicing in Colossae, because all roads went into Colossae and out, was this thing called syncretism. Now, syncretism simply means a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. When my, dad's would, when my dad was home on weekends, and most Sunday nights my dad would be able to be home with us, and we would go to church and come back and my dad cooked. Now, my dad could cook one thing really well, eggs. He could make a good omelet and some good scrambled eggs, and so when dad cooked, it was always breakfast, dinner, and I don't know that there's much better than breakfast, dinner. And he would put together what we called garbage can omelets. He would go in the refrigerator, this is no exaggeration at all, whatever leftovers we had from the previous week went into the omelet. Don't judge, pretty amazing. One time my father took spaghetti without my mom looking and put it in an omelet and I saw Jesus, I did. It was a holy experience. That's what syncretism is. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The eggs are good, but they need something else. And what was being taught in Colossae by the false teachers was that you start with Jesus, but you need to add a little bit of mysticism, a little bit of legalism, a little bit of ritual, a little bit of ceremony. And all of a sudden, you decided you really didn't think Jesus was enough. You just had to add to it. And this is what Paul's addressing. He wants to show the all-sufficiency of Jesus as supreme. And he does it by pointing out what Jesus has done. This message is broken into two pieces. And I'm going to tell you my fear after I explain the pieces. The very first piece, in the first eight verses of Colossians 1, Paul establishes who we as, remember, this is written to an audience convinced of the lordship of Jesus. And people have been washed in the blood of Christ. He's telling us what we already have in him. And then the second part of these first 14 verses is what we could have in him if we press forward. I don't want us to settle for the first part. There's an epidemic in churches in America who have misunderstood the gospel to believe this, that all Jesus came to do was to keep you from going to hell. That is a lie. There is so much more beyond being saved from your sin. There's a life in the kingdom. There's a growth of yourself. You're finding your completeness in Jesus. I don't want us to settle for just the first when our culture says that's all that matters. Because if you're saved from your sins, then worry about your 401k, worry about your reputation, worry about all these other things because you need them. And I'm here to tell you, I don't think you do. When we discover all we can have in Jesus, the rest of those things become worthless. And we find something more meaningful. So let's look at the first part. Look at what Jesus is doing with us. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. His audience is people like us. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Paul's grounding all of this in the sufficiency of Jesus, and by the goodwill of God, he points something amazing out. First of all, Paul's going to show us that we have an identity from God through Jesus. And it's really important that the last part of that phrase lingers for a moment, that our identity comes from God and it's given to us through Jesus. It's not of our own making. God did not choose the people of Colossae and he did not choose the people of the four states area because we are special, we're elite, we're brilliant, we're perfect, none of those things. We're simply been chosen by God because he loves. It has little to do with our value or our contribution. It has to do with his character. So we have an identity. In verse two, it says we're faithful. In Jesus, through Jesus, and because of Jesus, you and I are counted as faithful. Now I know this has caused some people to go, ooh, yikes, but let me be honest with you. 
If an angel of the Lord appeared right now in this room and said, if you are faithful, raise your hand, both of my hands are in my pockets. How about yours? I ain't gonna lie. What, do I wanna be faithful? Absolutely. Am I working toward faithfulness? Absolutely. Have I experienced temporary moments of it? Yeah. Is it a 24-hour part of my existence? Not yet. God is sanctifying me through the Holy Spirit toward that process, but I could never say to myself, I have been faithful to Jesus. No, I have betrayed him too many times. But according to his work, his faithfulness is attributed to me, and it's attributed to you. Our identity is that Jesus, by the blood, through the work of the Holy Spirit, will find us faithful. Second of all, he calls us in verse two, brothers and sisters in Christ. So not only did Jesus bring upon us a status change, but he brought us into a family. No longer isolated and kept out, no longer disqualified and the enemy, we are now part of his family. So our identity through Jesus is something that we possess now, even in our imperfection, because he did not choose us because we were great. He chose us because he's great. And he puts us together in this thing called the church, a community of believers, that we become the body, each part contributing its own part, not to be walked independently, separate of others, but Jesus called us into a family. The reason we're brothers and sisters, and I think Paul uses that term explicitly, is so you and I understand we are part of a family. This is not just about God choosing you and saying, hey, I'll come back and get you another day and take you to heaven. He's actually put you in a community where faithfulness grows us together. He also will show us that we have evidence of the work of Jesus in our lives. Not only do we have identity, but there's evidence. This is one of my favorite things to point out. And if you've been here long enough, you know what I'm about to say, but I'm gonna continue to say it because I think it's important when we understand scripture to understand who is writing to whom and why. And if you'll notice when Paul writes letters to Colossae and to Ephesus and to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians, and he's writing these letters to churches, you'll notice something in the beginning. And what was pointed out to me, it became just crystal clear, like, wow, this just helps me understand. Paul will always say, I thank God for your three things he's looking for in a church, faith, hope, and love. And if he says, I thank God for your faith and hope, he's going to talk to them about what's missing and what would be missing, their love. Corinthians. It's a perfect letter why he wrote to them and said, hey, you're doing really well on these two, but what happened to here? And when he's writing to Thessalonians, it's about their faith and their love, but he questions their hope. And in some churches, he says, I love the fact that your faith, hope, and love is present, like Ephesians and Colossians. So he's writing because God measures the church differently than we do. We measure a church by how many people are in the room right now, whether we enjoyed it, whether the parking was convenient, and all of these factors. Was it a good day? Well, yeah, it didn't stink. It was a good worship. No, that's by no means is how you evaluate worship of God. And so in the midst of this, Paul's writing this letter, and he says to the Colossian people, he says, I see your faith, and I see your love, and I see your hope, but he says something very, very particular in verse 5. He says, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, he says, your faith and your love comes because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see, Paul wants them to know that when we put our hope in anything but Jesus, our faith and our love will suffer if not die. You see, this is not just simply, I want you to understand this. This is not simply Paul saying, I want you to be more loyal to Jesus and not be loyal to anything else. He says, loyalty to anything else but Jesus will cost you everything you have in Jesus. It will strip you of the things that God is growing in you. But he writes them and he says, I love that your faith, hope, and love are present. And I love that your hope is propelling all of it. Jesus is enough. And the evidence of our walk of faith is found in that. And when people challenge you to add anything to your identity in Jesus, 
and invest anything that subtracts from what Jesus said or adds to what Jesus said, they're messing with your hope. The hope that will sustain you when everything's not perfect. Continuing in verse six, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. I wanna be brief with this. I took too long first hour and I just wanna be really crystal clear and brief with this. What Paul is pointing them out is if they ever wondered if Jesus is enough, Paul says, take your eyes off your own circumstances and look at what's happening throughout the world. The gospel works. The gospel is redeeming. The gospel is saving. The gospel is freeing. The gospel is identifying. The gospel is doing its work. It's drawing people. It's drawing hundreds of thousands of people to know every, every single week, thousands of people are coming to know that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that he's enough. And so if you ever wonder in your own life, I don't know all about this, or, or maybe I need Jesus plus this, or Jesus plus the right political leader, or Jesus plus the right 401k, or Jesus plus the right title, Paul's saying, no, no, don't let your hope be found in any of those things. They're all neutral, except when they become equal to Jesus and they become negative and detrimental. This Jesus is enough can sound like a slogan, but Paul is embedding it in our minds that it's much more than that. It's a worldview that changes the way we think and do everything we do. You see, the gospel doesn't need revision and the gospel doesn't need addition. The gospel requires submission to be totally committed to it over and above everything else. So Paul has pointed out in the first eight verses, just, and it's, I'm just picking a few of the many things he says here, but I want you to see what he's doing with us, we are his. And we are growing into completeness of Jesus through the work that he's done, the work that produces the fruit of faith, love, and hope, a hope that sustains us, a hope that guides us toward our love and toward deeper faith. Because our hope is not just that we won't go to hell one day. Our hope is that Jesus is more than enough for everything. So now let's look at what he can do with us. The second piece of this. Not only what he's done with us, but what he can do with us going forward. See, Paul doesn't just stop. He says, I'm going to pray for some things for you. Christianity, when fully realized, is not just about not going to hell. It's actually about our present and our future being centered in the kingdom of God, to the glory of God, and to the finding who we are and being found complete in him. Colossians 1.9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to, just a, a bit of historical fact, Scholarship that I read regularly, and I find anybody who's contradicted this, is that Paul probably never got to Colossae. So Paul had heard these reports from Epaphras and possibly Timothy. So he writes this letter to a group of people that he one day hoped to meet, but he'd never met. So he's acknowledging who they are as family. He's saying, I know because you're believers in Jesus that you will be found faithful and that this faith, hope, and love that's growing in you as family is what God's intentions are. But I want you to know that there's more than that. And when the false teachers come in and say that Jesus isn't enough, Paul says, I want you to realize what's available to you and I. And so I want to say that to the people that gather here this morning. Let's not just assess whether we agree with this. How about we experience it? Because we have an empowerment available to us through the work of Jesus. It harkens back to our series this fall in the Holy Spirit. 
and how the Holy Spirit has come to identify in our lives and glorify Jesus who glorifies the Father. And together, this Trinitarian beauty comes together and inspires all of us that there's more than we're experiencing. So Paul is saying, God did not just save you and sit you on the bench to one day come back and get you when he remembers. He actually has equipped you and called you into ministry to one another, to the saved and unsaved, within the church and without. And Paul uses repeatedly in Colossians, he keeps hearkening back on three terms, knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and spiritual understanding. You might ask the question, why in this letter is he, is he so apt to use those terms? I tend to believe it's because this is what the false teachers were offering them outside of Jesus. And Paul was saying, you don't need to go outside of Jesus to find knowledge and wisdom and spiritual understanding. In fact, you'll only find it through him. So he stacks these words together because he's telling us that these alternative opinions of what you need in your life, they're not neutral, they're dangerous, and they steal faith and hope. So this is what Paul prays for. He says, we continually ask God to, well, he asks that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit for discernment. That we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit for discernment. Look at verses nine and 10. That he would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. If I can break this down into as simplest pieces, Paul said my prayer for you is two things, that you can discern the will of God, verse nine, that you can have the knowledge of his will and that you can know him. And so when we talk about a pathway of discipleship and how each one of us is being called by God to draw closer to him, he's actually told us what allows us to draw closer to him, things like prayer, and reading the scriptures, and meditating and contemplating on what the word teaches, gathering in community and in fellowship, and inspiring one another, and encouraging one another, and even rebuking and exhorting one another. He calls us into these very simple tasks, to draw close to him, to know his will, and the scriptures are the will of God, and so we can read the scriptures and discern what God would desire for us. But the second thing he asked, maybe even more difficult, because some of you say, I just, I don't know how to do that, or I tried it, and I get dull with it, and I don't know... Second part's even a greater challenge in verse 10, and that's to live a life worthy. He says, to be able to perform God's will is part of knowing God's will. And if I may, and I only have a small sample of churches I've ever been involved in in my life. I count back, I've been in four fellowships of believers my entire existence. The home church I grew up in South Bend, the church I went to in college at West Lansing, Church of Christ in Lansing, Michigan, Mount Pleasant First Church, where I was for 20 some years and with you all for the last 11. So I only have experience, it's not broad and I can't say this without possibly overgeneralizing, but the biggest concern for me in the fellowships that I've run in is not that we don't know what God wants us to do, is we just don't wanna do it. And one of the things Paul says is that through the spirit he prays that not only would we be able to discern God's will, but discern how to live it out, to experience it. And that's a big prayer. See, the greatest problem in life is that it's not that we don't know what to do. It's that deep down inside, we don't surrender our desires, our appetites, and our will. So Paul says, I pray that not only would you have the knowledge, but you'd have the desire. And then he prays that we would be guided in obedience to bring God pleasure. That our obedience would produce the pleasure of God, not just simply being obedient. And this may be confusing, and we'll talk about this in just a second, but ultimately, There's been a lot of times in my life I've simply done the right thing so that you would all see me doing the right thing. Not because it brought God glory or pleasure 
or based on love. It was simply, I wanted to be found obedient, so I did obedient things without the heart or passion to bring glory to God. He says here, so that you may live a worthy, a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. We talked about this two weeks ago, if you were here, in a message called My Pleasure, where I poked a little fun at Chick-fil-A. Our true pleasure in life will only be found in God's pleasure. We were created to be in connection with him, and he doesn't withhold that from us. We withhold it from ourselves. When we live in the way God created us for the pleasure of God, we will find our own pleasure in a unique way we've never experienced before. And Paul says, I pray for that. Not that you just feel good about doing good, but that you actually find how to do the good in such a way that it produces a fruit in your life because it's based on faith, hope, and love. You see, it's not works that lead us to a knowledge of God. It's a knowledge of God that leads us to work. I want you to understand that because you can religiously do the right thing and never connect with the purposes. You can never bring pleasure. If, if God has become Gandalf sitting on a throne and you're waiting till he comes back one day, you've misappropriated the whole understanding of the gospel. God came to dwell with us and his spirit is with us every day. He's not sitting on a throne disconnected. He's actually right here. And everything you and I do within the will of God to please him brings him pleasure. And will bring you pleasure too. Romans 12.1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The motivation does matter. Filled by the Holy Spirit to discern the will of God and the desire to do it. Guided in obedience to bring God pleasure. And strengthened to finish well. This one's, I told you that some of it is uh, Warning. Some of it's not just encouragement, some of it's good coaching. And so Paul says that he prays that we'd be strengthened, verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joy, joyfully, or joyful rather, thanks to the Father. So I want you to notice that if you're gonna need great endurance and patience, I conclude life's not always gonna be easy that it's gonna be hard. There's gonna be challenges and obstacles and this worldview that of Jesus being enough is going to take away some of the things we have built our entire lives as our security. Whether it's your mind or your personality or your relationships, whatever it is that makes you feel like if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, I got this. That thing is an idol and it will be challenged as you walk by faith. And God will allow the world to display itself to each one of us, and it will be difficult. If we're gonna walk as lights in a dark world, the darkness does not like the light, and it will try to stifle it. And so Paul is praying that you and I would have the endurance and the strength to not only love God and serve God, but suffer for and be patient in the process. So he's praying for a strength that most of us wish we didn't need. That's why many of us grab other forms of security is because if life's gonna be hard, I wanna make sure I cover my bases. I wanna make sure that if this Jesus thing doesn't work out, I got this. And Paul's saying, you don't need that. In fact, that will prove futile and it will rust and fall away. So we're filled with discernment. We can find pleasure in obedience. We can have strength to prosper even under duress. And fourthly, that we'd be qualified to receive the kingdom blessing. Qualified to receive the blessing. Verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Two simple realities that Paul addresses here. There is a kingdom of light and darkness. There is a kingdom of spirit and a kingdom of flesh. There's a kingdom of good and there's a kingdom of evil. And whether or not you buy into that or not, I'm gonna believe that 100% because I see it evidenced in the world in which I live and Jesus told me it's true. And if you wanna live in this whole concept that there's not this battle of good versus evil, now you don't have to have a guy in a red suit with ears and a pitchfork. But there is a kingdom of good and evil and Paul warns us about it and he challenges us. Because here's what I've learned. That there are two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of good and evil, light and darkness, flesh and spirit. And, and Jesus, Jesus is the ruler over the kingdom of light and good and spirit. And we'll demonstrate it next week when you see all the things that Jesus does that God did and realize that he's not just junior God on apprenticeship. He's actually God. And he is ruling over this kingdom of light, this new kingdom, this kingdom of life and love. And there's another kingdom and it's darkness and it's evil and it's death and Satan rules over that. So without being too cute, let me be direct. If there's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness and Jesus is the ruler of the kingdom of light and Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of darkness, guess what? You and I aren't ruling either one of them. We are subservient to one of them by our choice. And Paul is calling us to live in the kingdom of light under the leadership of Jesus rather than trying to create our own kingdom separate of the kingdom of darkness by our own power, our own efforts, and our own securities. He's calling us to put ourselves in submission because the gospel doesn't need addition, it needs submission. So we've been rescued. And what confident lives we may live if we lived in the things Paul prays for. Once exiled and without hope, once enemies, but by faith in Jesus, we're now a part of the kingdom. The Father has qualified us to be a part of this kingdom if we enter into it through the blood of Jesus Christ, verse 14, through the work of the cross. It's all been made available to us. Christ, who is now our Lord, has won the victory over sin and death. He won this victory before you and I were even born. He provided this victory all by his power. We've contributed nothing to it but gratitude and faith. And he's given us all of this. See, this is not our battle to overcome evil. This is not our battle to create a new kingdom. That battle's already been won. The battle you and I will face is to daily submit to Jesus as being enough, to trust him away from our own power and authority and submit ourselves to his. We contribute nothing again but belief and gratitude and lives that live that out. We've been delivered into the kingdom of the son he loves, verse 13. So those are the facts. This is what's available to us. Are they our reality? Is it our reality or is it just simply facts that sound good and could be good? Because Paul's saying to Colossae, no, hold on to Jesus as your only hope and you'll be delivered. Hold on to the world and you've thrown a little bit of this and a little bit of that and all of it's gonna break down and fall apart. You see, this is not our battle to establish the kingdom of light. It is our surrender to enter into it completely, fully, not playing one side off the other. You see, it's so easy to mistakenly believe it's wise to trust Jesus plus retirement income or wise to trust Jesus plus acclaim and respect or wise to trust Jesus plus power and political affiliation. And they're all lies. Is Jesus enough for you? What more do you need than him and what he's done? What has ever served you better than he did? What has ever provided you more security than the one who defeated death on the cross, has kept every promise, walked out of the tomb, and invites you to do the same? 
What has ever loved you more than Jesus loved you? What has ever offered you free and full forgiveness like Jesus? What has ever loved you so much and accepted you where you were, so much that you want to change because of him? Who? We know the answer. No one. Most of us have tried a hundred things to bring that sense of satisfaction, redemption, and value back, and it's not found. What will, Je- what will Jesus being enough for you cost you? Everything. Everything that attempts to, com- to compete with loyalty to his will and his glory. I have no authority at all to tell you that if you follow Jesus, you'll be broken, poor, and have nothing. I can't tell you that. That's not true. But what I'm saying is if you have wealth and riches and all the gadgets and things you want and you don't have Jesus, you actually have a balance sheet that says nothing. See, Jesus redeems all the things of the world that he's given us as a blessing. He redeems those, but without him, they become our slave and our master. What will you abandon, or excuse me, what you will abandon will prove to be nothing in comparison to knowing Jesus. I asked Chip if he'd sing one of my favorite hymns. Here's four lines from that that encapsulate what we're talking about with Jesus being enough. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Jesus is enough. And we only know that when we make him enough. Trusting, serving, loving. So to those of us who believe that Jesus is Lord of all, let's live as if he were. Let's get rid of any distraction that might take us from proclaiming his authority, his right, and his glory. And for those of you who've never entered into this relationship, the the questions I asked were not just for the saved. They were for those of you that are kicking the tires trying to figure out if you can walk by faith. Jesus is enough if you follow him that you will find faith, hope, and love in such a way that it will save you, redeem you, and bring you into value and worth. Join us in this walk. He's enough. And whether you go to one of the tables this morning during the next few moments of musical worship or whether you want to come see us out at the prayer center and and make an arrangement for coffee or a conversation, don't leave here today saying, I think he may be enough. No, it's proven. The cross and the grave proved it. Make him enough for you by surrendering. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.